Hi, I'm Yudi Bunyamin and welcome to the Neumann Talk, a podcast where I meet past winners of the Australian Mathematical Society's BH Neumann Prize to learn about their journeys through the world of mathematics. This episode's guest is Swan Tekzeng. After his PhD, he spent a bit of time as a postdoctoral researcher at UNSW before going on to Macquarie University, where he is now a professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics. Zeng's research mainly lies in an area of pure mathematics known as harmonic analysis. Throughout his career, he has produced over 100 publications in this area and has held eight ARC discovery grants totaling more than $2.4 million. Zeng won the B.H. Norman Prize in 1990 while he was a PhD student at Macquarie University, working under the supervision of Alan McIntosh. What do you remember of your Norman Prize winning talk? Um, that year... 1990, then uh, the Australian Math Society had the annual conference in James Cook University in Townsville, so far north Queensland. Most of the time we had uh, conferences in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide. Just that year is very special. Uh, it's very nice over there, but it's a bit far, so... I believe that the size of the conference on that year might be a little bit smaller than other years because it's much more easier to come to Sydney or Melbourne rather than Townsville in North Queensland. That year, then, Bernard Neumann was still alive, the one that we have the name on the prize, and he came to the conference as well. So at the end, when I got the prize, then... uh, I was given the prize by himself. Uh, he was quite old at that time already, but he could still uh, swimming uh, and, and diving to see the Great Barrier Reef around Townsville or something like that. That's what I remember. And it was a very nice environment on that year because Townsville is maybe it's not as developed then as now but it's a very nice town. Uh, I do not remember the number of the, how many people attended the conference. It's too long time ago. But the topic that I gave in that talk was um, the topic of my PhD. At that time, I was in my last year of PhD. And uh, the title was um, Polymorphic functional calculus of elliptic operators. So it's a little bit uh, specialized. Um, For the talk then, I believe that uh, to give a good talk, then uh, we need two things. Uh, First of all, for mathematics, that uh, if you can have a good result or something like that, then we can give a good talk. If we don't have a good result in mathematics, it's very difficult to to give a good talk. But the second thing is that, of course, it's the presentation of the talk as as well. And the presentation was quite important because uh, the people come in and uh, to be the judge, then they might not in your field. So you need to try to uh, explain not just people in your field, People in mathematics, but not your, in your field, can understand as well. That's one of the things. Um, I think that price now, uh, they give uh, students more money now. I, I, I don't know exact number. but uh, Yeah, it's $1,000 if you win it yourself. And if you share it, it's $600 per person. But I think it hasn't changed since like the early 2000s. But my year, 1990, then I got only $50. Oh, wow. And a free conference dinner. I didn't have to pay for that. That's all. 
Yeah, because these days the conference dinner is included in the registration. Yeah. One interesting thing you said was that you, know, you talk about how for a good math talk, you have to have a good result, but it's also about the presentation. And I think when they talk about the B.H. Norman Prize, they tend to really emphasize that you know it's a lot more about the presentation than it is about the mathematics. On the website, there's some advice given to students about giving a talk. And one of the things that it says there is something along the lines of the mathematics or the quality of the mathematics says more about your supervisor than it does about the student. But I guess the way I feel about it, especially since I won in the equity session, is that sometimes you know you can package a talk or you can make a talk have as good presentation as you like. But if the results are not good, then there's only so much you can do. There's only so much we can package. I would think that the content of the mathematics is important as well. Of of course, at the level of PhD student, you probably get some new result, but not a very significant one most of the time. But at least if you can get something new, you feel happy about that, enthusiastic about that. When you talk about that, it's much easier to be a, a good talk. Uh, if you take everything from some textbook, there's nothing new. Everything in there is already known. And you give that talk in front of whom? Of people in mathematics as well. Then I would think that it's very difficult to give a good talk. I find it more motivated, more enthusiastic when uh, I can talk about something new. And uh, I mean, especially it's my own work or something like that, that uh, probably most is a new thing. There is something new in there for most of the audience or something like that. It's different from if I'm teaching in a university, I come in, I touch the mathematics already established 100 years ago or something like that. The, the, the content, I, I think there is still some element of the content in there. You've obviously given countless of talks since then. I think the first thing I should ask is, why do you think you won? I know this is 30 years ago, but did you think you were going to win? Like, or do you think it was obvious that you were going to win? Uh, on that year, I, I don't know. I mean, the details of the judge, uh, how they work. I don't even know who they were. I only knew... I think like uh, we had the conference dinner in the evening, then about uh, lunchtime or something like that, I was told that I got the prize. Uh, make sure I show up in the dinner. <laughs> so do you think that winning the prize sort of set the standard for yourself? You know, like, okay, this is a good talk and I want to talk like this again and again. Um, I think winning that Prize was a very good experience for me. But uh, most of the time when I gave the talk, I mean, in my professional life, the situation could be different. Because, for example, in the field of mathematics, I come to international conference, then I talk about my own work, then the content might be a bit more important. In mathematics, I mean, if you can announce that, uh, well, I have just solved a 20 years old problem, then the audience will be very uh, happy to hear your talk. Even if your talk is not uh, too easy to understand, they will sit there, <laughs> try to understand it and talk to you, uh, discuss about the idea then, uh, well, I mean, we got stuck with this for a long time. What is the new idea that you really get it, go through the problem? So if I come into the class of the university, give a lecture to students, my main priority is to make it easy to understand to most of the students. So I have to simplify the definition the example, choose the example clearly, and this and that. So uh, different situation, we do it in a different way. 
And in those years, in 1990, then we don't have the software like now. So many talk was given by uh, handwriting on the blackboard or a whiteboard. Uh, in my case, the talk in 1990, then actually I wrote it down and get a projector on the screen. But usually we don't have the same technology nowadays. So uh, on the talk, the people can see your handwriting. Uh, you can put color in it and this and that. These days you see the typing from the software of the computer. Uh, most of the time people don't see your handwriting or something like that. So the nature of the talk, I mean, of the way to present the talk can be very different. But at least at the level of a PhD student, then uh, winning the prize helped a little bit because uh, after a few years, when you uh, apply for a job, for example, the fact that you got the prize is some indication that uh, probably you can be a good teacher. At least you know how to present a talk to an audience. So people look at that. Of course, they still interview you, do this and that. But that could be an indication that you are someone who can give good lecture. That's a good thing about the prize. That's good to hear. I mean, I do wonder, obviously, the prize has already given me a lot of opportunities, but I often wonder, like, is this going to help me in the future? Because one thing I find very interesting about Norman winners is that regardless if they win in the 80s or if they won recently, it's still on their CV. Like, you would think that, you know, these people go on to be so successful that one day the Neumann Prize becomes nothing compared to all the other things they achieve. But I notice, like even the people who achieve very big things still keep it on their CV. Uh, it's a very nice uh, memory uh, of your nice time as a PhD student. So yes, I I like it too. So you are one of the very few Neumann winners who work in analysis, right? And that was what your PhD was about, and you still work in that area 30-odd years later. Now, I think the first thing we have to ask is, what is your research about? And the way we always ask this question is, if I was at the pub and I was talking to some random person at the pub, and they asked me, you know, what is Zung's research about? What should I tell them? That's a tough question for uh, people working in pure mathematics. Um, so when I got that question, I usually give some example because my work, uh, the closest example you can see is about the heat equation, how heat is transfer from one place to the other. So what happened is um, if you have a solid object, you can only get the temperature of the object from its surface. But you want to know the temperature inside the object. But you cannot break the object into pieces so that you can measure it. It means that you need to form an equation of heat transfer so that from the temperature on the surface, you get to the temperature inside. And if the object is a, is a smooth one, the surface is uh, very smooth, then that problem can be solved by classical mathematics quite easily. Uh, in the second year of mathematics in the university, you have the Fourier series, Fourier transform, something like that, you can solve that problem. But if the object is not uniform, the material of the object is not uniform, the surface has a sharp corner. Then when you take the temperature at the sharp corner, it can be very different from the temperature at other point. Then in that case, the model of mathematics that you have so that you can work out the temperature inside the object can be very difficult. And my research uh, 
some part of it is related to some equation like that. But when you describe it like that, I think a lot of people will think, "Isn't that physics? Like, where is the maths in that?" Uh, the math, the pure mathematics, most of the time, it came from some physics. It came from some good reason. We don't work on pure mathematics so that we got one or two lines of the answer for a problem without any good reason. Most of the time, we have some good reason for that. Um, another example that people might understand is like you have a signal processing, right? You want to put the signal on one end and get it at the other end, like your TV or something like that. Then first of all, that uh, signal processing, we start with a function. And then you use the Fourier series, you, you break the function into uh, the sum of uh, psi x and cosine of x, right? And then, I mean, instead of working with the arbitrary function f, you work with the psi and the cosine, depends on its coefficient, you add them up, things like that. And that's what uh, Fourier analysis started 200 years ago. And I'm sure for our audience, most people, if, especially if you've gone through high school, you know what sine and cosine are. And yeah. the kind of stuff that you're talking about actually is like something that we show, say, our first year or maybe second year students at university. In not just the maths majors, but also the engineers and the life scientists and so on. Yeah. But then, I mean, after you break a function f into the sum of nice function like psi x and cosine x, the obvious question is that sum, when you add them up, is it really the original function that you had? In mathematics, we call the Fourier series, does it converge? The answer is easy. When the function is, is a smooth one, is a nice one, then yes. Uh, people knew it uh, 200 years ago, and we can prove it. But imagine that your signal at the beginning is a rough one. It's a discontinuous one. And you want to break a discontinuous function into the sum of nice function. Do we have good reason to believe that sum of nice function give you the bad one, the discontinuous one? There's no good reason for that. But then, if the Fourier series you work with is not the original one, we are in big problem because you send out the original one. The other end, people got the sum of the series of uh, sine and cosine, which is not the signal you send out. And that's the big question in harmonic analysis, in Fourier analysis, even now. People still have open questions on that part. That uh, what kind of function that we st still have the Fourier series to converge to the original function? My work is related to that. Okay, no, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know anything about analysis, to be honest. That really uh, give me a good idea of what you do and appreciation for what you do. So. I think you very clearly identify yourself as a pure mathematician, right? But then after that explanation, it seems like it's very applied in the sense that you're trying to find order in like some chaotic structures, right? Like you, we know that the world isn't so perfect and that signals come through not so continuously. And so we try to find mathematical tools that, like you said, that converge to that Maybe another the way I would say it is like as, as close as possible to that. And I should say that, I mean, like the questions of the conversions of the Fourier series there is an extremely difficult one. And that's why part of it, some part of it is still open these days. Even with very strong technique knowledge of mathematics these days, there's still some part of it that's still open that we don't know of this kind of function, we take the Fourier series, does it converge or not, right? And you see another thing that 
you can see is when we study about the conversions like that, then you know many uh, model in practical problems we model it. We get uh, the differential equation. Then we cannot solve the differential equation because it's too difficult. We have to use it as a run through a computing program, use the numerical analysis to solve it. Right. But before you can write a software and use numerical analysis, you need to know that your sequence of approximation should converge and should converge to the expected solution. If you get a sequence of solution, E1, U2, U3, but then when you expect that when n tends to infinity, then uh, your UN comes closer and closer to the real solution, then that's fine. But you need to know that you have a solution first. If the differential equation was not formed properly, it might not have a solution or it might not have unique solution. And in that case, you work in engineering, you just put in the software, it costs you 24 hours of the computing program to give you a solution. And then that solution has nothing to do with the real answer. Because from the beginning, the equation that given there doesn't have a solution. How can you get the approximation of something which does not exist, for example? That's another question of analysis that we need to know. I think one thing you said just now that I think will come as a surprise to a lot of our audience, especially those who are still in high school, and I remember that was a surprise when I learned this in my undergraduate, is that there are equations which we still don't know how to solve. That's correct. Like, I think it's even when you start your maths undergraduate, you don't fully understand the magnitude of how much is still unknown. Yes, and that makes sense. Why? Because, I mean, all the model, all the differential equation that we have comes from some practical problem. But the practical problem, you have so many things in there. And when you establish the differential equation, you already ignore many factors in there. A simple motion, for example, you ignore air resistance. You just assume that it's go through like you have no resistance of the air. Yeah. And if you think about like when we learn physics in high school, a lot of the time we ignore that. Yeah. Yeah, you ignore that. And then oh, you suppose that uh, the air resistance is a constant times V, times the velocity. That's only approximation. It could be V, it could be V square, or it could be somewhere in between the V power one and V square. So many approximation in there. So sometimes a small change of the initial condition does not change much of the final answer. But sometimes a small change on your initial condition might cause a very big gap in the final solution. You might heard of some mathematics like they call the chaos thing, that they say that a butterfly is flying in some place in Amazon jungle can cause a storm somewhere. If it is at the right condition, it could cause that. So, so many things that we assume at the beginning, when you need it to do better, you might have to modify the equation. And then you need to know what's the effect of the modification of the small thing like that. So analysis has so many, so many questions. And when we get the better technique, a better knowledge, we just modify again the model to get a better answer. That's why there are so many things that we need to do research. And it's very practical in some sense. Even if my work, I don't have any patent or I don't have any straight application, but uh, some of my work, it appear in some uh, paper in physics or engineering, not much, but uh, there are some cases like that. So I guess when you do your research, you know, do you think about that? Because again, you are traditionally associated as a pure mathematician, right? 
A lot of people in the world think that pure mathematics is like the useless mathematics. People are just doing it just because they like it. No, that's not true. That's very further from the truth. Um, in my field, and most of the time, we answer some question because we have good reason for that. And when we write a research paper, submit to some journal, in the first part, the introduction, we talk about the problems. We tell people, I mean, why we have that kind of problem, the motivation, the things, and this and that. Most of the time, we have to explain that. So it doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't come from, I assume this because I just put it like that. You, you, you can't do it in pure mathematics. You have a new assumption. You should explain why. Is there some practical model? I mean, some practical situation that justify your assumption. And then you work on that. But you don't just invent it so that you can get some paper. It doesn't work that way. Because it does seem that way to a lot of people. I think even a lot of mathematicians who look at analysis and go like, it's very obscure. It's like this black box. But I, I get what you mean now that actually, of all places, that's the good place to be highly motivated by real world problems. Let me give you another example in analysis related to my work, but not too much. Is, for example, uh, signal processing. Then you break a function into the sum of the psi function and cosine function, right? And then you work with the nice function, the cosine, cosine function. So instead of the infinite sum, you cut off to 100 terms, uh, 1,000 terms, when you feel that that's enough approximation to get back to the original function, right? So that's done at the beginning of uh, Fourier analysis. But you could see one thing. For that mathematics, you want to get to the original function more accurate. I mean, with a small error, you get more terms of the sine and cosine. If you have to get uh, 10 terms of the expansion, you already get the original function. It's very different from you get 1,000 terms or 100 terms. You have more terms. It costs you much more money to run the computing program, to store the information, all the things, right? So some of the more recent work in harmonic analysis, we call it wavelet. The question is, why do you expand it in sine and cosine? Can we have a better expansion? Sine and cosine are very nice, but they are harmonic function. You all only change the period of the function from psi x to psi 2x, psi 3x, or something like that. So to get a good approximation, you might need 100 turns. Okay? Can we have a different kind of expansion so that instead of we need 100 turns, we only need 10 turns? And that's wavelength. People uh, make up a new class of function to expand it. And one thing is, for example, you want to keep the information of the, uh, of the picture of a face, right? Then you might need more information around the eyes compared to the forehead. The size of the eye is smaller. The forehead is much bigger size. But to reproduce that picture, you might need more information around the eyes instead of the forehead. This function like psi x and, co and cosine doesn't recognize that. It does the same thing everywhere. But the wavelet, when people change the expansion, they use different kind of, fun of function that give you more information in one place and less information at the other they can get a better approximation. That's an example of the achievement of harmonic analysis in the last 20 years. Another example was the, the fingerprint. How can the government keep all the information on the fingerprint? 
they don't have a continuous picture so that they can match it. Each time they want to check this fingerprint belongs to which one. They might have 20 points on the fingerprint. And when they check it, if they can match 19 out of 20 points, they said the probability is 99% that fingerprint belong to that guy. But how can you keep that? The fingerprint is not uniform. There are points more important than others. There are some kind of wavelet done in the last 20 years that uh, save a lot of space, save a lot of money for the storage of 500 million fingerprints of people from some government, for example. So it it's all comes from very practical problem. I, I would uh, argue that uh, pure mathematics is, uh, is very practical. And lots of them, I, I wouldn't say 100%, but uh, 90%, 95% of that might have uh, application in the future, if not now. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. And then when we talk with the applied mathematicians, you know, people think, oh, applied maths, you know, they are like doing things only that have applications and like changing the world. And, and then they will say, actually, maybe not everything we do will actually be used in the real world. So that's this misperception of pure maths is not as useless as we think. And applied maths is not like completely as applied as we think. I, I will take the example that I said, like you solve a differential equation by numerical method. Then pure mathematics would look at the equation and work out and prove it for you. Then this type of equation will have a solution. And the applied math, they knew that. So they will write down the software, give the model that taking the testing point here and here and here. So they run the program after 20 hours of computing they got to see the approximation of the solution. So they got the solution at the end. We got the existence of solution and they got the specific solution. So your work is in harmonic analysis. Now, when we say harmonic, or when I first heard harmonic, I start to think like music, you know. But now that you describe your work has a lot to do with very simple functions that we know, like sine and cause, and if you've seen, say, a sine curve or a cosine curve, it does look like a wave, like like musical wave. So maybe that's not so far off. But when I first heard of analysis, back when I was an undergraduate student, the first thing that came to my mind is like data analysis. And I think if I walk on the street and just randomly say, talk about analysis with people, that's what most people will think about as well. So it was only later in my undergraduate that I realized actually analysis is more closely associated with calculus than, say, statistics. But do you agree with that? I would agree with that. To me, then, analysis started with, you know what, the work of Newton. Uh, All of us know his work in physics, right? And he had the famous rule is... uh, if you have uh, the two objects, then you have the force attracting between the two objects, right? And the force is uh, proportional to the mass of the object, of each object, uh, and uh, inverse proportional to the square of the distance, right? But then he himself realized that the object is not a point. Right? So if he tried to find the force attracting the two objects, if it is only two point, then you can have a distance. But objects are not points. Of objects, you have the size. That lead to what? You have to cut the object into small pieces so that you can have a distance, and then you add them up. And that lead to what? Interaction. And Newton was one of the first one who introduced that because of his work. So it's a very, very practical problem and goes with interaction. I mean, starting on that, 
But you have an object even in year 12, if you study uh, four unit mass in New South Wales, you know that uh, integration, then you cut the object into small pieces and integration means you sum them up, right? Then that's the idea, but that idea is very difficult to work on. Each time you have an object, you cut them into pieces and then you add them up. What made science and technology develop so much after Newton times instead of thousands of years before because of the mathematics. Because Newton linked the interaction with the derivative. And to work on that interaction, instead of you cut it into pieces, you have a function f, you get the primitive function. They call the fundamental theorem of analysis of calculus, right? And it's so easy to work on that. And once they have the derivative, mechanics, the motion, lots of things in physics develop. It's not a coincidence that the science and technology develop so much, so much better than the time before Newton. Geometry, we knew it from a great time, 2000 years ago. But after that, science and technology didn't progress so fast. So in the history of uh, the achievement of human being, I think that the starting of the calculus, the derivative and the integration is a very important mark of human being. It affects so much on our life. And it all started with one idea. Yeah, and it started with some very practical ideas, practical problems. It doesn't come on Sunday that Newton wants to invent uh, derivative and integration to his satisfaction. No, he had some good questions in his physics. Yeah, that's very interesting. Like one little thing that you said there, which I think will catch a lot of people's attention, is that you're saying that integration came before differentiation, right? When we learn about calculus in high school, we always get taught differentiation first, and then we get taught integration, right? And people get told, oh, integration is just like the opposite of differentiation, right? It's interesting that it didn't come in that order. Um, in history, then integration came from a, a different question. Derivative came from a different question. Uh, derivative came from the question like uh, if we are driving the car, we know the changing of the position. We want to work out the velocity of the car, the speed of the car. That question leads you to derivative. Interaction, the definite one, came from, I mean, the object that I just said, or came from the question of the area under the curve because we only have the formula to work out the area when you have straight line. You can have square, you have rectangle, and you have the one that the, the side are all straight line. Only the circle is a special case that people know how to work out the area before they have interaction, pi r square, right? But if you have some place you want to work out the area and the side is a curve, you want to know the area of the part. That's the question of the integration. And that question at the beginning, it looks like it has nothing to do with the derivative. But it turns out that they are linked to each other intimately. And I would think that for integration, each time if we have to cut it into small pieces and add them up and get the answers, we won't have science to progress too much like now. We got it because the fundamental theorem of calculus link the two things, and that helped the advance of science and technology a lot. So would you be angry if I said, or if someone just said that analysis is just calculus? No, it's not true. Um, at the level of the first year of mathematics, the second year, then maybe you can say that. 
But keep in your mind that the calculus, the integration that you're having in year 12, in the first year, the second year, it was invented long, long times ago, more than 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Mathematics progressed much, much more after that, right? So to people from outside, then, well, if they say that, I don't think that is correct. I'm not angry with that because they just don't know. <laughs> uh, so I don't blame people if they say things like that, but I don't think that is correct. I mean, mathematics, even for me, I work in uh, analysis, but there's still some part of analysis that I myself, if I come to a seminar, I might not understand properly. Because, I mean, mathematics, uh, there's so, so much progress. I mean, new idea, lots of the things that done every year. So even myself, then I don't know all the progress of analysis. So for people from outside, if they don't understand it, then that's fine. Because, I mean, for example, lots of the things in mathematics, for example, you see, one of the basic things of mathematics is function. Is that right? It's function. You studied it in year 12, first year university. But if you think about function, the function is what? It maps a point x into a point y. Is that right? Think again. Do you, uh, like in the sense of integration, do you really have a point? Or you always have some length? What's the definition of a point? A point has no size. You only have a length. You don't have exactly one point. But that goes to the basic definition of function. When we first study function, we have, I mean, we make a big difference between a continuous function when it goes through that point then uh, it's continuous. It stays in one piece, or if it is broken into two pieces. But in physics, you never have a point. You only have some minimum length. Even in time, you have a minimum length of time. You have a minimum length of distance. And if you study more, you will go over function, you go to the concept we call distribution. When people only look at the effect of something on some length, but not a point. And distribution was invented by Schwarz. I mean, maybe 70 years, 80 years ago. But there's so many things in there in quantum mechanics and this and that. Then you might need distribution, but you can't have function. So to answer your question that uh, this analysis means calculus, the answer is no. There are so much thing, so many advanced ideas that you come into quantum mechanics. I mean, the size is very small, but you can't have a point. You have the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You cannot pinpoint a point, right? Something like that. So lots of things go beyond calculus. So your PhD was in analysis, right? And then you've stuck with it now for almost 30 years. My first question is, when you started your PhD, did you ever think that 30 years later, you would be still in analysis? Like, what motivated you to even start the PhD in analysis? Uh, I chose mathematics, personally, because I thought I was good at it. Why I choose analysis, but not other topics, I was fascinated by the mathematics and physics as well. If I didn't choose mathematics, probably I could have chosen theoretical physics. I'm so fascinated by the things like uh, 
the universe, the quantum mechanics. And you know that quantum mechanics use a lot of uh, analysis. You need uh, operator, you need lots of the things, you need Hilbert species, lots of the tool in analysis. But to me, then, uh, physics uh, about the universe, the origin of the universe, lots of the question there, I really feel that uh, I want to know it. But you can't understand it if you don't have enough background in mathematics because the theoretical physics, they use lots of advanced mathematics that if you just have undergraduate mathematics, then it's not enough. In my case, that's the reason. Just in this interview, you know, you've really fixed a lot of misconceptions I have about analysis. But do you think that your perceptions of analysis coming into your PhD were correct? Um, in my working life, I think that, at least in my field, when I have a PhD student, then uh, we started with some topic. But most of the time, the topic at that time came from the supervisor not the student. I, I know many universities ask the PhD candidate to propose some topic, some problem in their PhD application. I know it. I'm in charge of the PhD program at Macquarie for 10 or 15 years, so I knew that well. But most of my students, for example, at least I can talk about myself. When they come, that topic came from me, but not them. Why? At the level when they apply for the PhD candidature, they don't know enough to choose a topic for themselves. If they heard of some topics in analysis because it's so famous, it means that a very long-standing problem, even many famous mathematicians tried it and couldn't do it, so PhD student can't do it. PhD student don't know the most advanced, the most recent result in the field to choose a topic. I might know that uh, in my heat equation, people already solve up to this case. But the next case is what? I know it, but my PhD student do not know it. So. At the level of PhD, I mean, in terms of the topic, the topic for a PhD student, I mean, to me, that's one of the main job of the PhD supervisor. And that's the job of the PhD supervisor to choose a good topic for student. If he choose a too difficult one, after working for one or two years, both supervisor and student realize that it's too difficult. It's a disaster. Student needs something to graduate. If the PhD supervisor choose some topic and it is too easy, after that they realize, oh, that's not enough for PhD. It's much easier than we thought, even if it's unknown. It might not be enough for a PhD. So the job of the supervisor to me is to choose a good topic. I would not choose some topic like just yes or no. It's risky. In our analysis, that uh, I would choose some topic that we add a little bit more assumption. I would expect that it's not too difficult. So students can learn and work on that problem, get something new. Doesn't need to be significant, at least new, get something. And then we reduce the assumption. Instead of the function is uh, differentiable, we reduce it to just continuous function. Then what happens, for example? on the initial condition for the equation, for example. And then gradually we progress it. So for my topic, then I have to say that uh, my supervisor uh, discussed with me and asked me, Zung, uh, would you like uh, just harmonic analysis or you want a little bit uh, partial differential equation? And I said, I want harmonic analysis, but link to partial differential equation. And then that's the topic that he chose it for me. And I follow him 
he gave me the information, the background, the papers I work. So um, his job is to give me a good topic. The job for the student is to work that out. We don't expect our supervisor to solve the problem for us, <laughs> but we can, right? So um, the job of the supervisor is to choose the topic. The student solved it. I think that will come as a big surprise to a lot of people because it's not like that in other disciplines. Most PhD students in other disciplines go into it knowing what they're going to do. But not in mathematics. Because the students don't know enough mathematics. Like, you want to work on that kind of uh, heat equation. You need to know how much is already known. And the difference can be very, very small. You change a little bit on the assumption from continuous function to discontinuous function is a big gap in there. And it could be that it's known for the continuous function, but it's totally expected that it's extremely difficult when you just move it to this continuous function. You might replace the continuous function by some weaker condition in some sense, but not discontinuous things like that. So student, at least in my field, I don't expect students to find the topic for themselves. They will end up with either a too easy one or a too difficult one. Yeah, I mean, that's something that even a lot of our undergrads don't know, right? It's that in mathematics, it takes much longer than in a lot of other disciplines to get to the frontier. That's right. Compared to other disciplines. Why is that? Compared to other disciplines, because as, as I said, what you learn in your undergraduate was the mathematics of 200 years ago, of 100 years ago. Your calculus, your differential equation, the standard one, is also 100 years ago. Mathematics already up to that level. But you spend all your time in high school and the three years of the university, you're only up to that level. And then there's so much new result, new information, the level of research going on in the last 100 years. Especially for PhD in pure mathematics, it is expected that the work of the student is something new, can be published in some mathematics journal. The mathematics journal will not publish your work if it is not new. But you base your knowledge on 100 years ago mathematics. You try to get a new result this day. How can you do it? That's impossible, right? For some other field, once I heard of some uh, topic in PhD, of some student is the divorce between Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. <laughs> That's a different thing. Okay, I'm not saying that it's wrong. But uh, in their field, they can choose things like that. That's fine. But you don't do it. You, you can't do it in mathematics. It, it, it doesn't make sense. You, you can't base your uh, mathematics known 100 years ago. And you don't know, I mean, what's the people in technology these days? They want what? They get stuck with what point? There is some motivation in, in there. And you need to know that what you are doing is new. Do you really know enough the research of your field going on in the last 10 years? I have to say that even me, sometimes I miss some of the new results. Uh, 20 years ago, we only have mathematics journal. We already sometimes we miss something. But these days, you know, the archive where people send their preprint all over there, the archive you have thousands of new paper every day. So even in your field, sometimes you are too busy. You have your course, your undergraduate teaching. You might miss some of the most recent work. Even in your field, even the professor can miss. How can the student get it? You choose a topic, you work on it on one year, and then you someday you realize that, wow, Someone in China solved that problem and already posted on archive six months ago that you didn't know. It's a disaster. I mean, I'm saying that even me, sometimes I don't know all the new papers coming on. It might take me some time. 
And it's, I mean, it's just not me. I mean, my collaborators have the same thing, but I work with some postdoc, and usually the postdoc have more time to check. So I rely on them. I ask, uh, can you check it that uh, this topic then we searched is there any new new result on archive or something like that? If it is new, well, we can use their result. We change our assumption, do something else, right? But the student is very difficult to do that because, I mean, yeah. we work in the field, we look at that, we know immediately that, okay, this type of question, they even solve it with the assumption which is even less than we want. It means that we have to change the topics, lots of the things, we have to adjust it. But very, very difficult. Maybe there are one or two PhD students who could do it, but they would be the top guy, the genius one. Yes, then they can do it, but not the ordinary one. And I guess that explains why mathematicians go to conferences and you know go to seminars is to like get up to date with the news, get up to date with the most recent developments. Part of the conference is talking to people so that you know what's happened most recently. And it's not just about the talk. I mean, what people talk officially in the conference. Sometime you meet someone there, can be your friends or not, or sometime you discuss, we can discuss about some problem we are solving. Sometimes we share that. We don't share it to everyone. But sometimes we think, I think that that guy is expert on that part. I might ask him this point because I know that this problem stuck at this point. And he probably the one who knew some good idea about that. So I can talk that to him. He, he can ask me other questions that he think that I knew more than him. And then we collaborate lots of the things. There are certain cases happen like that. So that's why we can't replace it just by Zoom meeting. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, of course, these, these days we cannot travel, but uh, I hope that when it becomes normal, and yes, we need the exchange of idea face-to-face and lots of things. So why have you stuck with mathematics and with especially analysis for this long? Like you must obviously enjoy it, right? Because I feel like what you do sounds like a nightmare to most people in, out there. Especially if you tell high school children, there are people in the world whose job is to do maths every day. It sounds terrible to them. Why do you love it so much? Um, I think most people doing research in mathematics from the beginning, they choose it because they enjoy mathematics. It's very rare that if they don't enjoy it, they still choose real mathematics. I couldn't see that's the case. And each new problem is a challenge. Some is a bigger challenge, some is smaller, depends on how big the problem you are working on. But uh, to me, then, uh, when we solve a good problem, it's uh, there's some satisfaction in, in there. As I said, I mean, the problem comes from some practical thing. Uh, yeah, so uh, one thing about pure mathematics is like uh, our publication, we don't expect a patent, we don't expect we get money from that, right? But uh, we sweat out, we work on it, we write out the solution very nicely, we send it to the nice journal, and when they accept to publish first, we are happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't get money for that, but we happy because we solve the problems. Good problem. I want to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast, uh, which is to complete the sentence, a mathematician is someone who... For me, it's someone who want to understand what happened around us. We're curious on that. And to me, it's amazing that uh, so many things that human beings can understand it in mathematics and in physics. 
I think that's one of the best achievement of human being. I'd like to thank Zeng for speaking to us for this episode. You can find out more about Zeng by visiting his webpage linked in the show notes. This episode was produced by Alina Sari and myself. We'll be back next week with another interview. Neumann Talk is a podcast produced by students and staff from the School of Mathematics and Statistics at UNSW Sydney and hosted by me, Yudi Bunyamin. Follow UNSW Maths and Stats on Facebook or Instagram to see updates on the latest episodes as well as other exciting news from our school. If you've been listening to our podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. Send me a tweet or a message on Twitter at Yudi underscore Bunyamin. Let us know who you are and if there's something one of the winners talked about that really resonated with you or even if you have any questions about mathematics of your own.